Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hi, I'm Christian Peterson, and this is New Books in Religion. Welcome and thanks for joining us today. I had the great pleasure of speaking with William Arnell and Russell McCutcheon about their wonderful new book, The Sacred is the Profane, The Political Nature of Religion, which was published with Oxford University Press in 2013. What brings us together as scholars in religious studies? Are the various social phenomena commonly grouped together as religion really that similar? The sacred is the profane, the political nature of religion, adds to this ongoing debate over whether religion is a useful explanatory term. In general, issues of classification and the constructed nature of the category of religion are now a repeated theme in many scholars' work. Arnell and McCutcheon argue that we need to take our analysis even further, and the common practice of historicizing the word religion, or the habit of putting the word in quotation marks, generally fails to reveal the ordinariness of these social practices, thereby naturalizing the idea of the sacred. Ultimately, we need to stop employing religion as an analytical category because it is a first-order folk classification derived from a particular historical setting. It is our job, then, to re-describe activity and explain the processes of social classification and identity construction. In our conversation, we discuss definitions, Disney World, discursive product, theories of signification, secularism, politics, Christian origins, the graduate study, and the relevance of our work's minutia in addressing larger educational and disciplinary objectives. It really was a lot of fun, and we had a, a great conversation. So without further ado, here's my conversation with Bill Arnell and Russell McCutcheon. Thanks again for listening to New Books in Religion. Welcome to New Books in Religion. Uh, today, I have the pleasure of speaking with William Arnell and Russell McCutcheon about their great new book, The Sacred is the Profane, The Political Nature of Religion. Thanks for joining me, guys. How are you doing? Great. Who, who goes first? Yes. <laughs> doing well. I, I'm, very, uh, I'm very excited. Thanks for, for your patience and kind of setting up, up a time to talk. It's uh, often more difficult with two people, and so... There might be a little confusion, but we, I think we'll all get through this just fine. So, um, Now, this is a really great book. Uh, many people may be familiar with both of your work uh, previous to this, and I think this uh, collection of essays really works well together in kind of uh, addressing where we should be going as a field and what perhaps we've uh, – some kind of hurdles we have to jump um, before we get into the book, though, I was hoping you guys could tell us a little bit about how you got interested in the study of religion, um, and specifically since that's part of also uh, how you guys know each other. So perhaps you could tell us a little bit about your guys' relationship um, within kind of studying religion. Bill, do you have any recollection when we met? Actually, I do. Oh, my um, gosh. <laughs> Is it a story you wish to tell? Yeah, it's it's not so bad. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
No, uh, uh, we were, um, you were senior to me by a few years. Um, but, uh, we were both students at the Center for the Study of Religion in Toronto and, uh, did not know each other. And a professor there who was teaching a very large popular introduction to the New Testament class, uh, hired us both as TAs. Is that when we met? Yes. I yes. did not. I thought we had already met. I, yeah. Oh, I certainly remember that. Yeah. Yeah. So, so we were TAs together in an intro to the New Testament class. Uh, and that's really how I got to know you. And then subsequently, I think our mutual friendship with Willie Braun, uh, probably, uh, played a part in bringing us together. We, uh, we TA'd for Michelle Desjardins in a night course. Yep. And, uh, uh, he would bring in a large stainless steel church basement coffee percolator. Remember? Yep. Yes. And every oh, yeah. night he made coffee for everyone and had snacks, and uh, we had TA sessions before and after each lecture, didn't we? Yep. Yep. And we wondered why Michelle was such a popular uh, professor, right? <laughs> yes, it, it was the coffee and cookies. Yes, and the TA, the excellent, excellent TA. Yes, well, that, that one was the same. Yes. <laughs> so how, how, maybe you could tell us a little bit about how you ended up there. Uh, what was going on? What sparked your interest in, in kind of thinking about religion before you got to Toronto? Russell? Well, for me, um, uh, my undergrad, I've written about this in blog posts. My undergrad was in what uh, Queen's University called life sciences. So a lot of people writing the MCAT and want to go to medical school. And uh, I did uh, two uh, theology master's degrees at Queen's in Canada after that. And uh, very quickly in the first realized I was interested in studying religion and not interested in being a uh, uh, officiating at religious ceremonies. Did the second master's uh, there. My wife was still in a, 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 a program herself, had to graduate, and uh, I wanted to write a thesis. So I enrolled in a course, uh, a Master of Theology, so that I could get experience writing a thesis. And from there, I applied to, uh, to Toronto. In my case, the, the story is quite different. Um, uh, and actually, I, I think this reflects a general uh, difference in interest between Russell and I. Our emphases are kind of different. Um, but uh, as an undergrad, I took um, an introduction to the New Testament course and just absolutely fell in love with that material. So I wasn't interested in religion uh, at all. But that was the rubric under which you could take courses in early Christianity, New Testament, Gnosticism, all that crazy stuff. And uh, so I applied to uh, the Center for the Study of Religion for graduate work, um, again, exclusively with the idea of um, pursuing the history of earliest Christianity, New Testament stuff. And um, it was only when we had to take this core method and theory course uh, when we entered the program. And I had the great good fortune of having – uh, Don Weeb and Neil McMullen as um, two of my professors for that class. And I sort of realized at that point, oh, I guess I'm interested in a broader issue too. Um, that is how this New Testament stuff fits in with broader human patterns of behavior. If you guys don't mind, um, since I do have both of you, 
it seems like there was a, a particular kind of intellectual community happening in Toronto at the time. This is, uh, you know, around the time of the, the beginning of uh, the North American Association for the Study of Religion and the Method and Theory in the Study of Religion Journal. Um, you also you dedicate this book uh, to your peer Willie Braun, uh, who also takes a, a similar approach to the study of religion. I wonder if you could talk about uh, that kind of environment. What, what was going on in that environment that uh, I mean, you guys all seem to kind of gravitate around uh, similar interests, uh, you know, out in all of your various kind of foci. You know, Bill, uh, sometimes I talk to grad students who are at Toronto now. I think you and I have talked about this, and they don't know that MTSR started there. Isn't that insane? They don't know that the uh, graduate... Center for the Study of Religion was a completely autonomous unit that yep. was separate from the undergraduate department. They just assume. And faculty there don't seem to nurture that part of its history. Is that is that an experience you've had or is that just me? Oh, absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. That's definitely my experience. Yeah, it was really, I would say, the, the really exciting thing going on. Now, that exciting thing wouldn't have happened were it not for the people who were driving it. Russell, most prominent among them. Uh, but but uh, they, there was a what was initially a student journal, uh, Method and Theory in the Study of Religion, was basically put together, invented, created uh, by graduate students at the uh, uh, center. Yeah, John and, Morgan, John Morgan, and Anne Baranowski. Aaron Baranowski. and and it became kind of a flashpoint or a focal point for those of us who were coming through that program to talk to each other about how we thought we should study religion. And I, and I like to think during that period that I learned as much from my uh, peers as I did from uh, the faculty there, and in some cases more from my peers than I did from the faculty there. I also met my partner as a result of, of MTSR. Uh, Darlene Yushka was a uh, editor of MTSR, and I ended up meeting her because of her connections with Russell and Willie and Arthur McCalla and so on. And we're together still after 20 years. That's the remarkable thing. That's the remarkable thing. <laughs> you know, when, when I started the center, Willie was, uh, I think, two years ahead of me. I can't recall. Maybe three. Um, so Willie and I met uh, probably in uh, Robarts Library, a large 14-story big, if people know the University of Toronto campus. Fort probably Book. in the cafeteria. You know, like him coming in, he's writing his dissertation, I'm still in coursework. But back then, um, well... Now, too, any program in our field, the, there's the typical divide among students and faculty, right? Why are you there? What do you think the study of religion is about? What will it accomplish? And uh, the particular ethos or whatever you were mentioning, Christian, I think uh, it was really isolated to a very small group of us there. I think, you know, Bill, remember the mailboxes? There's probably like 70 yeah. or 80 grad students, right? There's mm -hmm. a whole bunch of boxes. Yeah. And really, there was a group of five six herb seven of us right yep, yep. who who um um some of us predated uh, don weave and neil mcmullen having a leadership role some came in when they had their leadership role but i think it was during the time of their leadership role in this graduate unit which had faculty cross-appointed from the entire university uh not all of whom were in the department that taught undergraduate students um i think it was that under their leadership that particular group of friends, uh, all very different data domains, right, historic periods, but a common set of interests in 
religion as, as nothing more or less than a subcategory of, of what it is people do. Um, and it was a very brief time there, I think. Um, in in uh, a Feshrif that uh, Bill, me, and Willie Brown uh, co-edited uh, in Don Weeb's honor, Failure Nerve in the Study of Religion, that came out, what, last year, I guess? Mm-hmm. We talk about the Toronto School of Thought, you know, maybe a little tongue-in-cheek, and also as a, a compliment to Don's influence over all of us, whether we agree on all points or not. But there was a period of time, I think, that there was a, a rather distinct um, view that a few of us had that also happened to coalesce around MTSR that other people did, but we then got involved in that. And uh, that's, to me, lamentable The current students there don't know that. Whether they agree with it or not, it seems to be a pretty strong indication that um, though you feel you have a lowly marginalized place as a grad student, uh, you don't. You have effect. You can you can change things. It doesn't always happen overnight, but that's what I find somewhat lamentable. And MTSR has had such a huge impact. It's such a fixture in the field, you know. And and to 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 tell graduate students today who are suffering at Toronto, uh, like we were suffering, uh, you know, the the students came up with this journal, and now it is a serious international forum for theoretical questions, methodological questions, and so on. I think that would be extremely encouraging. I'd have the covers framed around the top of a wall in some classroom. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, you know, some some actual marker that um, Anne and John went department to department asking for money. The Center for the Study of Religion did not give them money. What <laughs> wonderful irony that is. <laughs> and like, I mean money meaning 25 bucks, 50 bucks. And they literally made this by, you know, cutting up the pages. If anyone's ever made a book, you know, the first page and the last page have to be on the same piece of paper when you send it through the copier because everything folds, right? They literally made that for the first um, four years. Uh, so a lot of hard work, but then also a lot of wonderful effort on the part of people like Don and Neil and other profs, Robert Siegel early on, um, sending their work there, making connections, helping to pave the way. It eventually went to Mouton de Gruyter as a publisher, went to Brill, and it's been at Brill for now um, 15 or 16 years, I guess. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a wonderful story for, especially in these times of job market issues, of what is the relevance of the humanities that um, your predecessors here who were are, who are doing what you're doing now uh, made this thing that you now take for granted. Yeah. Yeah, well, th- yeah, I appreciate you telling us about that because I, uh, I think it is valuable for, for people to kind of be cognizant of these things. Now, uh, this particular book, uh, could you tell us a little bit about how this started to formulate as a, as a book project? When did, you, when did it start to emerge uh, – in conversations between the two of you, why this particular set of articles? How can you tell us a little bit about how that process went? Um, since a lot of the stuff is is reworked uh, from from previous published work, um, and, and perhaps why why republish things that you know some of these are uh, in in other forms uh, uh, widely available through kind of uh, there's a couple from the Journal of American uh, Academy of Religion. So could could you tell us about kind of how creating this book came up, came about. Well, Bill, I think I sent you a message, didn't I? Yes. It was your idea initially. Um, I, uh, for a variety of reasons, I've turned into an essayist. Uh, I don't know if I'll write another monograph in the future. And to be honest, 
I, I would have great difficulty defending the uh, supposedly taken-for-granted distinction between a monograph and a collection of essays. Um, uh, we can indeed talk about that later if we want. But I tend to be an essayist for a bunch of reasons, and every now and then I'll collect up pieces, uh, rewrite them, maybe not rewrite them, and uh, be thankful if a publisher thinks it's worthwhile publishing. You know, They have to make their own cost-benefit analysis. Um, but it dawned on me that uh, Bill and I work in entirely different fields, but we don't, but we do, <laughs> but we don't, right? And one of my continual frustrations with at least how uh, um, I perceive my own work to be received by some people is I don't have real data. I don't have a real object to study, et cetera, et cetera. I've gotten that a lot over the years. Um, but in conversations, Bill and I um, do the same thing, I think, much the same, but we do that dance in entirely different data domains, and you would hope that's what scholars do, that they could have conversations across their different offices, regardless what they happen to study, that they have similar concerns, interests, problematics, curiosities, assumptions. So I think that was in my head thinking, well, you know, I know some of the things Bill's been writing, and I think they illustrate similar points, and this could make for an interesting project. Is, is that how you remember it, Bill? Absolutely. And I think I, – and, and when you suggested it, I was very excited by uh, the idea uh, in part because it seems to me that, that Russell and I end up at the same point through different routes. Uh, and, I, and I thought that was a very interesting phenomenon. I, I don't think that either of us developed our views back in grad school by sitting down and talking with each other about them. Or, uh, or having the same professors. Yes, exactly, exactly. So Russell I, – I, and uh, correct me if I'm wrong, Russell. I, I would hate to mischaracterize you to your face. Um, <laughs> but but um, uh, it seems to me that, that Russell's main approach to this stuff – and this has been uh, true uh, especially from his dissertation forward – has been – been to analyze the scholarly construction of religion. And that really hasn't been my tendency. I've tended to approach this material looking at early Christian and New Testament data and finding religion to be a frustrating straitjacket in that context. So I think that we've got these these uh, different emphases, different ways in. And what's so remarkable is that they land us in precisely the same place. So, so there is a tremendous amount of agreement, uh, and so I thought that the, that having our essays interwoven together like this, um, not you know half Russell's essays and half my essays, but an essay by me and essay by Russell and so on, um, uh, would really help sort of underscore that uh, similarity of conclusion, in spite of the differences of approach. We have and, a few. Uh, sorry, yeah, go ahead, Bill. No, I, go ahead. I, uh, I was going to say, um, um, I, I don't want to suggest that those differences of approach are incompatible. I'm interested in the scholarly construction of religion, and I think that Russell is interested in a in a, a less enthusiastic way, perhaps, in 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 uh, uh, data from early Christianity. Um, uh, so it isn't that you know I think his approach is wrong or he thinks mine is wrong, um, but that our interests are driven by slightly different questions and we still end up in the same spot. And I'm sorry, Russell, go ahead. No, no, no. And I, I agree with that. And I, I think I'm going to talk about that. Uh, there was a review in Newman that just, you know, in my reading, would you agree, Bill, just panned the book? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> surprisingly personal, actually, at times. But 
I thought that's where the reviewer entirely missed everything you just said. Yeah. That the fact that you and I, you know, we rewrote some, but there's a lot that is not rewritten. Sure. And don't, don't buy the book if you have written the, read these things elsewhere and you're content with whatever effect they did or didn't have on you when you read it. But to miss the point that, that Bill and I working in entirely different fields are quite comfortable putting our imprimatur on each other's work knowing that it ends up in a similar direction, that it makes a similar um, theoretical and methodological point, um, fails to understand, I think, the discipline-wide critique the two of us are interested in making. Mm -hmm. Is that a fair way of saying that, Bill? Hell yes. (laughs) (laughs) Um, This is why it was easy for us to write the book together. (laughs) Now, we debated how are we actually going to do this? You know, are we going to? So Bill sent me his essays and I read through them and made, you know, I think we, we, we did it at a distance. Obviously, he's up in Canada. I'm down here in the U.S. Um, so we did track changes and, you know, it's not major, but I think the, the, the key was signaling to each other, um, yeah, no, I can live with that. I, I like that statement you've made. I think that was important, and I think there's field-wide implications for it. It was, it was actually a very interesting process. One of the things <clears throat> that the reviewer of Newman pointed out is that in, in cases where the pieces had been previously uh, published uh, by one or the other of us, we, we would write ourselves as I, and in the book, we wrote ourselves as we. Oh, and, no. Uh, yeah, well, but what I thought was – that was an interesting experience for me because yeah. I found myself – you know, sort of, sort of tagging on to Russell's statements, and he was in the horrible position of having to to uh, claim some ownership of my statements, and it was it was weird. Well, I would not want to be elaborating on points from chapters that originated with you and are primarily, yeah. obviously, you. Um, you know, Bill, you should talk about that. You know, if yeah. we get to that point in this interview, but at the same time, yeah, it is we, yeah, because yeah, we the the data is different, but the theoretical point that is being made is in agreement across these pieces. Yes. Uh, and and I thought that was a rather rather shallow reading of the book to be quite honest, but you of know, course. to each their own. <laughs> yeah, well, I think uh they they work well together and um even though, you know, even knowing that this has been published here or that um it 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 flows very well together. And uh Well, you know, we hardly invented the genre of an essay collection. Uh, of course. Of course. Like I know a lot of people who do this. And so now it's up to readers to decide whether they like it or not. But but also how pompous of an author to presume just because they've published something, somebody has read it. Yeah. Right? So again, it's up to a reader and a buyer to decide whether they wish to look at this. But I have no doubt that anyone who has read Bill has not necessarily read these pieces. Have they? Did they know that he was in the guide? Depending on the generation of a reader, do they even know about the guide? Right. So I think that's part of the rationale for a collection is hoping that there's some coherence, but also a a bit of authorial uh, humility, saying uh, I, you probably don't know of all these pieces, and I'm suggesting they work well, and you might want to look at them. Yeah. Yeah, thanks. This is, uh, I think, in- interesting for, for people that are working, uh, you know, writing that now and thinking of their work in the future and how, how it's a continual process, right? Because now I think you're everybody knows. These. I think everybody knows how they look at a journal when it arrives in the mail. 
right? Mm-hmm. Like you don't read it cover to cover. <laughs> you know, I don't know what other people's strategies are, but I think a lot of people look to see, is there a topic I'm interested in? Do I know somebody who wrote something? Do I know someone who wrote a book review? Like we have a strategy for looking through it. So just because something's in print, we all know we have limited time. And I think the vast majority of it, obviously we, we don't read. Sure. Um, so as far as kind of uh, the the argument, one of the one of the main arguments you put forth, uh, I forget if it's in the preface or in the introduction, but um, I'm going to read a quote real quick if you don't mind. Uh, you say our position, obviously enough, is that the concept of religion is a survival in the technical anthropological sense, and has thus outlasted its shelf life. That we would be uh, be better served setting aside not simply the word, but the very idea that it makes good academic sense to clump together for description, analysis, or especially explanation, those diverse acts, institutions, objects, and claims that we normally call religious. Now, uh, this is a a theme you return to again and again, and you look at from a variety of angles, which um, I hope you can talk about um, later on in the interview. Um, But maybe first, uh, you know, like you said, maybe people are not familiar with your guys' work. Can you kind of uh, explain what you mean here? Can you, why should we not think about religion? Doesn't re- religion really exist out there somewhere? Can't we really get at it? Bill, why don't you take that one? <laughs> oh, give me the hard one. Eh? <laughs> <laughs> I'm waiting for your favorite color is. <laughs> oh, yes, that's right. I've you, I, Yes. And I, I does that survive in the book? Anyway, sorry. Um, um, I, in the uh, guide to the study of religion, I, I uh, made a contribution on the definition of religion. And um, I used the example in making uh, essentially the claim that you just uh, described, Christian, um, that uh, we could very well isolate uh, all of the objects in the world that were colored blue um, and have a department for the study of blue things. And the blue would really be out there in some sense. Um, you could objectively say, yes, uh, the sacred is the profane, uh, has a blue cover, so it belongs. Uh, that truck out there is blue, so it belongs in the same category and so on. So they're actually, you know, you can specify if you want, uh, empirical differentia, uh, that allow you to work with that category. But what's the value of the category? If you're an art historian or or into philosophical aesthetics, that might be a useful category for you. But if you're a sociologist, is blueness really that analytically helpful? So I think that and, – and I think both Russell and I agree with Jonathan Smith on this – that you can sort of specify any definition of religion that you like and work with that definition. But – Traditionally, uh, um, those things have tended to cluster around a certain type of object, and it seems to us that clustering those objects has uh, reached the point where um, it is no longer analytically useful uh, to um, consider, say, uh, the writings of Paul to use uh, an example that, that uh, of stuff that I'm interested in. And um, I don't know, uh, the, the uh, ghost dance movement and um, uh, megachurches together, that there's no analytic utility or purchase offered by clumping those things together. Is that or fair? Or to press it, no rationale for why they're clumping yes. together. Yes. What analytic utility is served by clumping them? Because any two things can be compared to any, like we can, right? 
So it's the implicit assumption of the, dare we say, essential similarity between these things. And similarity here means sameness, right? There's an ontological oomph behind that word. Uh, that's not offered. And I think that's what our critique is aimed at, that kind of scholarship, specifically not aimed at people you know, in the wild, just walking around talking about religion and assuming that this thing they do before they eat is necessarily linked to that thing they do with a baby to bring them in the community is linked to. Yep. In other words, of course people use the word religion. Of course they use it in acts of self-definition, other definition. I, what I think we're hoping is that scholars can do something other than, and we say this in the book, simply adopt uncritically a folk taxonomic system of use to these people obviously of use to them. They wouldn't be using the word in the world the way they do if it wasn't. Can't we do more than simply uncritically adopt it and use it as if it has analytic utility, as if it's talking about something real and tangible in the world instead of seeing the very category itself linked to a series of other categories, a series of institutions, behaviors, as being social work. And I'd add further to that, that it, that it seems to me that it, not only is there not a rationale for clumping these things together, not a coherent one, um, but in addition, a, a, you know, to sort of failing to have a, a, a real rationale for putting these things together, um, it, it ha- a, a, the category religion has um, the very strongly negative effect of separating those things from other kinds of things that aren't usually classified as religious, which tends to underscore the uniqueness of religion. Religion, which undermines any possibility of explanatory treatment of, or maybe explanatory is too strong a word, but interesting analytic treatment of the kinds of behaviors usually classified that way. When we call something religion, no matter how good our intentions are, we're saying that somehow it is separate from what could be discussed ordinarily as politics or as sociology or as culture or what have you. And there are problems with all of those categories too. Uh, but it seems to me that, that clumping this stuff together has the effect of also serving to make them special and therefore incomparable to precisely the kinds of, of comparisons that would give us some purchase on this stuff. And, and if by special you then want to critique it and undermine it as a terrible thing we got to get rid of, or if by special it means something that ought to be nurtured and appreciated. Like it spends yeah. many ways, of course, but it's the same set of management techniques that these people are using to group specific things together for very particular practical purposes on their part, to see it as distinct, separate, set apart, et cetera, et cetera, for all kinds of different reasons. And I guess whatever our argument is, we're hoping that scholars – can do something other than just simply participate in the very tennis game they say they're studying. I, I an example that I've sometimes thrown out, um, and and this was kind of a turning point for me on the whole issue of defining religion. Uh, it, years and years ago, I'm I, I, I'm uh, a scholar, particularly not just of early Christianity, but uh, I did my doctoral work on Q, uh, which is a hypothetical document underlying the um, canonical Gospels of Matthew and Luke, and Q is basically a wisdom writing. So a bunch of scribes sat down and collected the you know observations of Jesus on how to live life, right? Consider the lilies, this kind of thing. And there's a whole genre of ancient Near Eastern wisdom literature that Q belongs 
uh, in and uh, it shares many features with. And uh, so as a Q scholar, I, I was participating in the SBLQ section. And one year, their call for papers, this is way back in the 90s, their call for papers asked for topics on Q and ritual. And I just about blew my top. There is nothing in Q, nothing that that it points to ritual. Q is a wisdom document with arguments to make about the world. There, there's no ritualization or anything like that involved in it. So why did this stupid, stupid topic come up? It was because Q talks about Jesus. Jesus is religious. Religion involves ritual. Therefore, there must be ritual in Q. And it drove me absolutely crazy. And from that point on, I just thought religion is an obstacle to understanding the data that I'm interested in, not an assistance. So I guess our argument is not about defining religion the right way. Right? A lot of people yeah. somehow read it that way. I think there's a lot of people who read us who think they agree, but actually they're looking for the better way to talk about it. I think we're interested in the very phenomenon that we talk about a seemingly distinct element of the human we call religion yeah now um you guys offer several kind of opportunities or paths to kind of uh, approach data in new ways um so one of these that uh you talk about in the last essay uh where you you really look closely at how thinking about religion or or thinking about uh christian origins in the context of religion is it really interferes with our ability right which you're, you're telling here and uh so basically you, you talk about this idea of estrangement, that what we should do is kind of uh, use this idea of estrangement to think about uh, our data in different ways. Can, can you talk about – so if religion as a category is, is limiting or constricting on our ability to kind of explain whatever data we're looking at, uh, how, how can we try to fit it in or how can we try to uh, get at some sort of explanation of what's going on? Well, I, I don't want to um, get uh, um, uh, too focused on New Testament stuff, but it really is, you know, where where I'm focused. So, just as an example of this, um, I tossed out Q before. Let uh, let me raise Paul now. The letters of Paul—they're religious documents, right? And that and and so people inquire about their theology. Uh, it seems to me that it's uh, and and sometimes people push that a little bit and they say, well, let's talk about the political implications of Paul's theology, or let's talk about politics in Paul, or something like that. Why not view these writings as political writings? Period. Through and through. They're propaganda. Yeah. Through yeah. and through. Yeah, absolutely. So but that's a huge insult to the document, right? Oh, yes, yes. I'm reducing Paul to politics, right? right. Um, and it seems to me, in fact, in New Testament scholarship, there's been an increasing tendency uh, to, to look at the political ramifications of these texts, but that ultimately it hasn't gone far enough. What if you stop thinking about these texts in terms of God, theology, uh, religion, and so on, and view them as uh, sub-elite political propaganda? Um, it's like saying, "It's like saying, let's study the political implications of President Obama's State of the Union address." Yeah, yeah. <laughs> we would never say that, yes. right? The yeah. political implications of this spin happening on some news channel. Because we know it is politics through and through. We know there's things at stake. There's social actors negotiating, contradicting, manipulating, right? So it's that presumption of, of some kernel that then has a secondary effect. Yeah. That's the problem. 
Now, uh, somewhere in the book, I forget. Like, like, can, I, can I go back to this? So, therefore, what what little New Testament exposure I've had, I TA'd with Bill long ago and, and learned a fair bit. I had courses in my own past. It's it's Philemon that I just. It's a letter that I love. If we're talking, oh, yeah, about letters, right? Yes, <laughs> just so blatantly apparent. Can I borrow your slave? <laughs> like. <laughs> Mom and Dad, I'm coming to visit you at university, and I know your younger brother came to visit you, and I wouldn't want to tell you how to treat your younger brother, but I do pay your tuition, but I would never want to bring up that. It is a beautiful, and and thus the history of why it was even included, because it so cuts against the presumption of ethereal, otherworldly, right? Yeah. And, And to be able to read not just the other documents that way, but the very fact of them being collected into an authorized thing we now take for granted as a book, that now becomes – people say, you know, if we make this kind of move, what will we study? I tend to think if we make this kind of move, what won't we study? Yeah. It's all interesting in a whole new way now. No? Would, would, how would we – would we shape a field then? Would we have a field of religious studies, I guess? This is part of the, the argument that people would make with this, right? Uh, yeah, I'll, I'll take a stab at that. And I'm not entirely <laughs> sure. I, I, I can't promise that Russell and I necessarily agree on this point. Uh, although I think we've got some common ground here, but I, my, my attitude is that, uh, religious studies serves precisely the same function as something like women's studies. Uh, that is to say, it is a corrective for the failure of traditional disciplines, uh, to treat uh the data under our umbrella uh, with the uh, disciplinary approach in question that is to say if historians are failing to recognize that you know women are actors in history that's why you need a women's studies department i think that sociology departments anthropology departments history departments political science departments have a tendency to treat religion religious data in their domains as different unique and so on so all their disciplinary tools seem to fly out the window in light of that, I would say that the value of religious studies is as a, cor- a corrective to that and uh, that once – if in fact the field is successful in providing that corrective, it should disappear. To me, the corrective is demystifying this thing they call religion. Precisely. If I see, if I see anyone writing on religion from another discipline, no matter how sophisticated a uh-huh. theorist they are, they're just trotting out their own Sunday school expertise. Yeah. It's very clear what they're doing. You know, show me a theorist who, who examines the nuanced social construction of gender or race or, you know, they're very, as soon as they turn their attention to Protestantism, Judaism, yes. Islam, suddenly, you know, we're, we're back at, at their world religions textbook knowledge. Mm-hmm. So if the corrective is that, if the corrective is to say, no, no, no. The same theory works over here. The yes. same social construction. No, no. It's also happening here. Then, you know, I'm all for that. A. B. No matter how sophisticated a theorist you are in terms of meaning, intentionality, the author, like we still have departments of English. Like yep. it's not that they've suddenly imploded after the last 30 years of these critiques. Or anthropology, uh, even though they're the people who are best equipped to know uh, what a mess culture is. Culture is. Many know that. Yeah. So it's not that they're not making good on the critique. I think they're pragmatically recognizing that um, we need uh, rubrics in terms of which 
to subdivide the complexities of the world. But the key, I think, is owning the rubric. The key is acknowledging it's yours. You've defined in this way, ideally, you and a bunch of other people, and let's call them colleagues. Let's call it a department, right? But that's all the tool is. The, pro- the problem is thinking the tool is more than that, thinking it was somehow given to you from the, from the top of the mountain. Like you'll notice that a little earlier, Bill said Q was a hypothetical document. I love that. Probably, Bill, not everybody who studies Q would necessarily say that or say it so easily. Am I correct? Uh, hard to say. Hard okay. to say. But to me, the key is Bill just owned it. And we don't always have to say that. We don't always make you know, air quotes with our fingers. But in other words, in that, I heard that Q is something that scholars thought up. And I don't want to you know, minimize the way I say thought up here, but thought up to help explain a problem they were curious about in a set of texts. Mm-hmm. And the problem concerns similarity and difference. Yep. Like Q is a beautiful EG of how to do comparison as a scholar. So if you think Q is really out there, and, and if we just dig in the right place. <laughs> I've got a copy here. <laughs> you've kind of missed the whole point. Instead, Q to me as a concept, as an organizing rubric for data that we will call texts, right? Q is a wonderful example of how this ought to work if, if you do Q scholarship the way you know I imagine one does it. It's a shorthand for a set of curiosities a group of scholars have about similarity and difference and their assumption of how texts are written and communicated. And we use that construct. Well, there must have been an original, and that must have gotten in the hands of somebody else to help do some problem solving. Like it's a great little example of how scholarship, I think, ought to work. Instead of thinking, Q is out there. I think it's under that rock over there. Let's go find it. There's the classic origins quest, and now – you know, now you're you're off on a rabbit chase that's never going to end. Can I also say, I, actually, speaking of how scholarship is supposed to work, uh, it it seems to me that one of the 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 great good fortunes of collaborating with somebody who doesn't do exactly the stuff that you do is precisely the light it sheds on stuff that is second nature to you. And I'm thinking, Russell, of your comments on Q. I'm still learning from Russell. The way that you put that was absolutely wonderful, and and it changes the way that I think about my own area of focus because suddenly uh, now the light shines back on you and your curiosities yep. yes exactly and why do i do it this way yes yes what is the effect of this yeah you know? it's and 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 it's it's so helpful for developing a kind of uh self-awareness that you might not have if you weren't working fairly closely with somebody who who does different stuff and there's one of the problems in our field right now. I think, you know, all the very way a PhD works, and, and that's, yeah. uh, you know, right, you're congressperson. That's a much bigger problem than we're going to solve. <laughs> but, but the kind of increasing specialization, you got to write the final dissertation. It's going to be on this one word and this one verse or this one garment that one person wears at a certain time, right? We all have specialization. But the vast majority of us get jobs in three-person philosophy and religious studies departments, five-person departments, where you're teaching all kinds of things. So they come out of graduate school with this kind of specialization, which is necessary and inevitable, and I understand it, but little ability to tell someone who doesn't share that why what they do is interesting. Yep. 
you know, sitting across from that little interview table or making a campus visit or what will I teach on for the practice teaching I have to do on campus? And if you have the luxury of being interviewed in some, you know, massive department with five specialists in your subfield or that's one situation. But it's not the majority of us will not be doing that. And while you hopefully will be writing your research on specialized things and good luck doing that, uh, much of your time is going to be talking about very broad things. So how can you talk about broad comparative categories of which your work will be an instance like Q? It's an instance of problem solving. Oh, if that's how you phrase it, now you can talk to all kinds of people about it. While they don't get the nuance of the detailed argument, that's that's a conversation with other people. Now, if you guys uh, could, the the title, uh, the sacred is the profane. This is kind <laughs> of a uh, a poke, and but it's it's a theme that runs throughout the whole thing that we haven't really. Kind of I would talked I would about I would call it I would call it a prod. A <laughs> <poke>. <laughs> um, so could you could you tell us a little bit about uh, the title, and then uh, I mean, kind of what's at stake here, uh, which is kind of. Uh, foregrounding what we've been talking about, right? These binaries between the sacred and the profane, the private and the public, religion and politics. and Because uh, you, you talk about this explicitly in several of the chapters. I got to say, the, the, uh, that, that brilliant yet evil title is, is Russell's doing. <laughs> <laughs> His suggestion. I approve entirely. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's the I got turned into a we on that yep, one. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> well, Personally, you know, um, Iliade's work was great for the field in many ways, obviously, right? The, 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 there's a two or three generations of people, maybe more, have had, you know, what a, a, an MA student back in Missouri once called the Iliade effect. You know, reading this and, oh, suddenly everything is a universe of similar things and, right? So, so it's, it's, it's obviously had effect. But on the other hand, for me, um, it's deeply problematic. I've written on that a little bit in the past, not really that much, but for some reason people assume that all I've written on is you know, criticizing Iliade. But that one book title that's been very influential in the field, you know, we all know you can go to these mass bookstores and it's on the shelf. Joseph Campbell and Iliade are on the shelf um, still to this day. I don't know, you know, the Iliade Foundation or someone's getting those royalties. But it just seemed to be the way into the problematic by focusing on that one book title, tweaking it just a little, changing a word, putting religion in quotation marks, uh, and then hopefully signaling what we intend by that in the book. Uh, at least I think we agree on this. I built that we hoped that that was a, a, a pointy little way, like a poke, into a problem uh, in a subtle way to tweak a set of assumptions that would be brought to a book like this. Mm-hmm. I, yes, absolutely. Now, uh, now I mean, really- a problem for me, like, but, but I could add to that. A problem yeah, for me ahead. is that we just don't have a you know thesis, antithesis, synthesis. Let's all be you know Hegelian <laughs> or Marxist here. All right. <laughs> the object of study is the binary. Right. Yes. I don't think Bill or I have some fantasy that we're going to transcend binaries. A lot of scholars seem to. That in, out, up, down, here, not here. This seems the way, just the way cognition works. 
but it doesn't stop us from inventing new binaries to study other binaries, et cetera, et cetera. So I don't think we're interested in reducing the sacred to the profane, or we're really interested in the book of saying it's the very distinction between the two, where you draw that line, what is entailed by that. That's the object of study. They're the same thing. I don't know what we'll call that thing. You know, will we call it history? Will we call it culture? Will we call it shit happens? Will we I'm, call it I like that one. human doings, <laughs> right? And one of those human doings is uh, drawing lines. Yep. And all the effects of those lines once they're drawn. Who's in, who's out, who's allowed, who's not allowed. When do I do it? When don't I do it? So in a way, I think the book is is hopefully in a updated way, but it's a very Durkheimian book. In some yeah, way. I was thinking that as you were talking, that this is really no more uh, particularly radical than than uh, Durkheim's approach to religion. Or Mary Douglas. This yes. is just saying, but the, the, and this is what makes it interesting, the controversy is applying that approach that everybody teaches in some first year class, right? Banal. Applying it to our own sacred things, quote unquote, right? Like the category religion. Why is that not just one more of those little management taxonomic tools we use to tremendous effect, obviously? Um, that's where I guess the controversy comes in. Because from our point of view, I don't think – I think it's a relatively mundane argument, not not to be – Yeah, yeah, yeah. Hey. Yes. And, uh, you also so the the subtitle, of course, is of the political nature of religion. And you uh, you, you mentioned first and foremost – Religion is a political category. Um, so could you, could you walk us through this a little bit? You talk about this in the book in a, a couple chapters, both in relation to uh, kind of the state, but also the development of the field uh, as kind of a product of uh, kind of the Cold War. Um, yeah, I, I think that actually um, the, the political nature of religion as a subtitle points to actually two uh, distinct, related, but distinct arguments. One is, is that the category religion is a political construct of modernity. And on that point, Russell and I are in complete and 100% agreement. And I think that we both find that, the, that construction fascinating. I think that the, the uh, Cold War article, which was originally written by uh, our Cold War chapter that was originally written by Russell uh, is just a beautiful instance of the smoking gun. Uh, really nicely illustrates um, the political ramifications, not just of the idea of religion, though that too, but of the cultivation of the academic study of religion. But there's another argument also being made, and that is, and and it is less consistent throughout the book, but it crops up here and there, and that's that the stuff of religion, the the things that get thrown into that category, yes, the category is politically constructed, but in addition, the kinds of things Things that get tossed in there can often be best understood as political artifacts, as human doings that are best compared and contrasted uh, to the kinds of things that we today call politics. Uh, I used that example before with respect to Paul. So, so again, I think there are two things going on here. We're saying religion, in quotation marks, that is the category, is a political construct, but also that many of the things that end up in that construct might also equally end up, and we might gain good analytic purchase on them, by throwing them into the political bucket. Again, what's to be gained by renaming scripture propaganda? Yeah. Right? yeah. What's the intellectual purchase? What's the profit? What's the 
you know? But that's a question that we won't even entertain because of the set assumptions that already come um, encoded in this thing, you know, we're calling the discourse on religion, that allowed you to call it scripture in the first place yep. in contradistinction to, you know, these other genres. So, again, this is literary criticism theory for the last 30 years, the politics of the notion of genre. Yes. What's at stake in thinking there's somehow – because it's all text. There's all kinds of people who are convinced that text is text is text, they say, but we still don't see grocery lists on the syllabus of most English department courses, right? So implicitly, there is still a certain kind of discourse being reproduced there, and I think we're trying to simply say here, take this genre critique seriously and apply it to our own um, uh, important um, – um, Markers. Have either of you two read Umberto Eco's Foucault's Pendulum? You know, I got through the first 1,500 pages. <laughs> and then you had to put it down. Well, and I, then I'm, I'm waiting for the pendulum. <laughs> yes, I read a long time ago. Yeah. Spoiler alerts for, for anybody who might be listening to this who intends to read it. Uh, uh, turn off your, your sound now. But when you said grocery list, it, it reminded me of Foucault's Pendulum because the, the story revolves around this conspiracy theory uh, yeah. a, that these guys develop. They found an ancient manuscript or what they think is an ancient text and it's evidence for this Templar conspiracy that started in the, around the Crusades and has continued all the way to the present time and uh, at some point it's revealed that the um, uh, document that they're all reading is a laundry list. <laughs> Canticle for Leibowitz. Yes, right? yes, that's another right. one. Yes, yes. And, and thus, it doesn't mean you can't study it anymore, but the it you now study is the canonization process itself. Yes, yes. Right, The scripture you were previously interpreting for the meaning is now not the object of study. The very presumption that it is deeply meaningful, the very presumption that it is necessarily thus linked to these other presumed deeply meaning, that now becomes the object of study. So thus, canon is the category of interest, not scripture. But in doing that, you free up the stuff that's going that that has been plugged into that scripture yes. or canon category to be understood in different ways. Oh, look, this turns out to be you know a laundry list. Why the hell is this incredibly manipulative letter? Assuming it goes back to yep. an author called Paul, but I won't even go there. Yep. Philip, why is it even in the Bible? Yep. Now that is an interesting question. Well, and how have uh, people who regard that as canonical for the past 2,000 years pulled deep meaning out of it? How do they deal with it? I'm guessing there's not a lot of sermons delivered based on that text. (laughs) (laughs) But that would be interesting to pursue, right? Right, yeah. How many many sermons? How many times is it read at a wedding? (laughs) Yeah. Uh, another thing that you guys do in, in relation to what you're talking about, right, is kind of thinking about religion as ordinary. And you guys use a a, a bunch of great examples. Um, you're talking about Donald, Rums, Donald Rumsfeld. You're talking about uh, carpets. Um, but you have a whole chapter about uh, thinking about religion in relation to Disney, the Disney world, <laughs> uh, the Disney universe. Can can you just kind of – I really like that chapter. So could you just give us a glimpse of what, what might we learn about thinking about the category of religion in relation to Disney? 
That was originally a JR article, but you gave that as a Nasser paper first, didn't you, Bill? Yes, I did. I remember that Nasser panel yes, in, in in at Disneyland or World, yes, right? Yes, <laughs> it was. It was when the AR went to met in Orlando. Uh, on the Disney grounds, um, I gave a paper for Nasser, and I was really disappointed because I was the last uh, uh, speaker, and uh, Jonathan Smith was in the audience, and we had a smoke break uh, just before my paper. Jonathan never came back. <laughs> But yeah, then I then I published it in JAR. Um, I think that it, it, you know it seems to me, and I and I try to get my students to do this, but ultimately it's it's not uh, in the end that intellectually interesting. But but uh, you can take any data, right? Uh, and there there are so many uh, uh, people who collect owls like me. Um, or heavy metal fans or the Saskatchewan Rough Riders fans or this sort of thing and say, well, this is a religious phenomenon and you can compare, you know, the ways that this phenomenon has things that we associate with, with religion like ritual and group bonding and this sort of thing. And, and students eat that stuff up and I do think it's helpful pedagogically, uh, but it doesn't gain us that much purchase. Um, so I want to be clear that in that piece, my, my argument is not really, oh, look how religious Disneyland is or Disney World. Uh, um, it's an argument about uh, the category of religion, about demarcation. And it seemed to me that what was most interesting about Disneyland was that it had a border. Uh, at Disney World. I got to distinguish between those two. One in Florida is Disney World. Uh, but that, that it had a border and that that border was absolutely fundamental to its identity. It had to, it, it only existed by virtue of, uh, what it was not, by virtue of its separation. And it was that separation that allowed it to, to proclaim its specialness. Uh, and that struck me as the really interesting analogy to religion again as a category. It's not so much that there are Disney rituals or Disney priests or Disney religious specialists or whatever, and you can uh, find those things in religion too. It was that the act of promoting Disney as a special space struck me as um, uh, very much equivalent to or similar to, comparable to the way that religion is um, – um, uh, marked out, and also that the function, the political function of doing so, uh, the ideological function of doing so, struck me as, as very similar as well. Thus, the object of study, Durkheim, yep. Mary Douglas, is yep. distinction, yes. demarcation, yes. classification, comparison, similarity. That goes there. This goes here. Management, arrangement. This is how it now very easily starts to slide into much larger issues of today, geopolitics. Yep. Right? Because it's not that far to get from classification to management mm -hmm. because you got to have a tidy classification. What do we do with anomaly? Um, so the Disney chapter to me is, is a fantastic example of this. Looking at something you might not normally think of and say, well, it's similar to what we see going on over here. I'd also add, I mean, to sort of by way of, 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 uh, uh, bearing myself here. Um, uh, I, I'm, I, I have always been in, in my approach to religion, uh, very much influenced by Marx. And, uh, as a result of that, religion has always struck me as having a fairly straightforward ideological, or the things we call religion, I should say, uh, have struck me as having a, a, a very straightforward ideological function. And I was so struck 
by that ideological function at Disney, this naturalizing, normalizing, and at the same time segregating uh, of of the essence of Americanness that I couldn't help but make that comparison. It was almost forced on me. The bird chirping was piped in on loudspeakers. Yeah. <laughs> you could stand at the light pole and look up and see it in the shrubbery or whatever it was up there. Right. But but the interesting thing then becomes, can you make the move if you're teaching this or talking to a colleague to say, well, that's not unique. That's yeah. how culture works. Yeah. It, we, we just happen to have sung the same national anthem for 30 or 40 or 50 years of our life. But it's it's all piped in. Mm-hmm. Now, I wouldn't want to quite say it that way because, you know, oh, well, it's all fake. Well, then what's really real? Right. Again, to kind of dispel that oppositional notion that it all works like that. So you can look anywhere for, and this is what makes comparison and this approach interesting, for an object of study. If this is your approach, it's happening everywhere. So now where will you profitably make the case to persuade someone, you know, that's your choice now. But the Disney example is a great example. But, you know, look at kids singing a national anthem. Or or the functioning of a law court. I mean, it's all over the place, right? Um, but yeah, Disney is a particularly egregious example, so I think it works well. You know, uh, my wife and I are watching Rake right now. Do you know this Australian TV series, Rake? Not me. He, he's yeah, a, he's a rake. Oh, it's great. He's a they an American remake of it was was terrible. But let's not you know go there. Everything's <laughs> got to get softened when it's remade here, right? Yes. But he's an outlandish character who's a fantastic lawyer, but a relatively terrible human being. But people still <laughs> find him lovable. You know, he's he's a rake. <laughs> But there's a great uh, – you know, every episode, of course, has a case and then there's the ongoing soap opera of his life. He's divorced, has a son. You know. But there's a great episode where he's defending in court uh, a Muslim woman in Australia who does not want to uh, bear her face from the veil in the court. And he's trying to make the argument they, they have to see you and – and she just turns around and says, when we go in court, you're going to wear a gown, a wig. Like she very quickly names – back to your court example, Bill, right? Yep. That he's as deeply embedded in artifice and ceremony and seeming irrationality. Why do they wear those wigs, right? But the normalcy of his – and he kind of does the eyebrow thing like point well taken. But there are larger issues here we still have to pay attention to. Um, it's, it's, it's a scary point for a lot of people to – entertained seriously, I think, mm-hmm. um, that it's all equally curious because it's all equally artifice doesn't mean it doesn't have consequence. Doesn't mean there's something yeah. not at stake yeah. for reproducing it. And in that sense, we shouldn't be misunderstood as saying religion isn't real. As a matter of fact, it seems to me that the that that the burden of much of of Russell's discussions is it's very real. And uh, that is that. Uh, and again, I'm talking about the category here, not the stuff of. Uh, but the category has a serious impact on how we live our lives day to day. In uh, the West. So the issue becomes, how does it become real? Yes. Why is it real? Why does it have an yes. effect? Right? In the door, out the door, I just made that up. But how to study that these things have consequence and impact? What is gained by their use and their reproduction over time? Who stands to gain? Who doesn't stand to gain? So if anyone says it's not real, then it's really just being said that way for effect. That yep. the, the point is... 
These things are incredibly real. If by real you mean the way anything in social life that gets reproduced, authorized, um, contested, you know, rally, rearguard action, readvanced, the way any of those things uh, have effect. That's kind of the fascinating thing. Now, I'll tell you, you know, I'm, I'm, I have a green card. I'm a Canadian citizen. I've worked in the U.S. for my whole career. I'm a permanent resident. So when I became a permanent resident after being on a different visa, now when I enter at the airport, I can go on a different side of the velvet rope. At <laughs> like citizen, not citizen. It's just a category. We, no, these things have effect. Yeah. Am I going to stand for two hours in that line and miss my connection? Or am I going to zip right through here by showing my green card? So an, so an anatomist can't uh, take Russell's body and find the the legal immigrantness or the Canadianness of him. But those exactly. things are very, very real. Uh, I bleed the same as all those other people. I eat the same. I speak largely the same, depending what kind of American I'm compared to. Does a Canadian life. not bleed? <laughs> <laughs> but there's a very real difference. If by real, it means how my body is treated in this lineup for two hours versus this line that goes zip relatively quick. So anyone who comes back with this, oh, the real, that kind of critique, it strikes me as um, it's a rhetorical strategy on their part to just dismiss this analysis of how things come to have consequence in an effort to simply reauthorize the consequence they see them to have because it's probably relatively self-beneficial to them. So uh, we've taken a lot of your time. Um, we haven't really even covered much of the, the details of the book. Uh, so I want to give you the opportunity. I don't know if there's anything that you guys would like to bring up that we, ha we haven't been able to, to discuss that you want listeners to know about the book. Bill, do we have anything? Uh, well, I would say, I mean, uh, um, I have um, been a little bit frustrated uh, by the failure of my uh, colleagues in early Christian studies uh, to um, engage the book. And, and, and again, it strikes me that that uh, the real um, uh, interest of the thing is is two people getting together from different different areas of expertise, different perspectives, and talking to each other and coming out on essentially the same page. But my colleagues in, in early Christianity, you know, they see the book, oh, this is theory, and uh, they don't read it. And there is actually some stuff, uh, especially in chapter 8, that uh, they might actually be interested in. Um, so I, 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 uh, I think that dimension of it is almost inevitably uh, neglected. Uh, I suppose the other thing that I that I would uh, insist on mentioning is is that uh, God clearly did not want Russell and I to publish this book um, uh, during the summer where we were really you know putting things together and twenty eleven. 2011 and getting a final manuscript together, um, I was struck down by uh, an intestinal blockage that required emergency surgery, and Russell's house was hit by a tornado. <laughs> My wife and I did the whole in the closet with our dog. Um, if our house had have been probably five houses further down the street, it would have been destroyed. Like I mean, like destroyed. Yeah, so that uh, 2011 was a interesting time for us, wasn't it, Bill? Yes, it was. <laughs> We're all glad you made it through. <laughs> now, um, listeners, I'm sure, uh, are interested in what you guys are doing in the future. I'm wondering if you could kind of give us a little glimpse about things you might have coming out uh, 
you know, shortly or things that you're working on now that are going to come out down the road? Russ? Uh, well, I'm sure Newman's reviewers will eagerly await my next <laughs> collection of essays. I have a collection coming out called Entanglements, Marking Place in the Study of Religion. And if you can think of my dog, what she does in the morning, every morning, then you might understand my title. Uh, it's a collection of responses I've written over the years with some new introductions to everything. And I have a set of essays coming out, um, uh, a modest proposal on method with uh, Brill and uh, – um, uh, uh, eagerly involved in a new project called Culture on the Edge, edge.ua.edu, um, and a little book that we have coming out of uh, blog posts and all early career respondents working with the material that the other seven, uh, the seven members of the group are doing. So I'm kind of pleased about that. It's called Fabricating Origins. Fantastic. Um, I, I would just want to uh, sort of underscore plug-in culture on the edge. This is a smart group of people. And um, I can say that because I'm not one of them. Uh, and, and, uh, uh, Check in the mail. Uh, yeah, yeah, <laughs> but but uh, their posts are are widely available on Facebook. So um, anybody who ha- who is on Facebook and and isn't aware of what Culture on the Edge is doing, I strongly suggest you you like their page and you'll start getting uh, updates and blog posts. Uh, and it's fascinating stuff. Uh, as for myself. Um, I'm working on, uh, oh, I sound so boring after Russell. Uh, <laughs> I'm varnishing uh, a table. Yeah. <laughs> I'm waiting for the winter to thaw to work on my yeah. garden. That's gonna right. Paint, that's right. going to paint my house purple. <laughs> <laughs> well, it does need a new coat. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I, it's almost as bad though. I'm, I'm working on a uh, commentary uh, on the Gospel of Thomas for uh, the Soci- uh, Society of Biblical Literature series on uh, wisdom literature, uh, and I'm contracted for that. I probably will have the manuscript in without about, uh, within about a year. Um, so that's a, a ways distant, and God, it's a commentary. How boring! Um, but that's what I'm doing. Great. Use vowels. They love vowels. I will. I will. I'll, let me write that down. Hang on. <laughs> <laughs> well, guys, uh, appreciate your time. It has been really fun to talk to both of you, and uh, I, I hope everyone does read the book. Uh, and whether they, they buy it or not, I think they'll benefit from, from reading these set of articles. So thank you again. Thank you thank very you. much. Bye-bye. Bye. That was my conversation with William Arnell and Russell McCutcheon about The Sacred is the Profane, The Political Nature of Religion which was published by Oxford University Press in 2013. Thanks again for listening to New Books in Religion.